Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Sir Richard Jolly, an honorary professor at the University of Sussex, looks at the history of the United Nations and how its ideas have changed the world. I'm going to stand up right away, and I'm very glad to be here. Uh, not only with Jeff, whom I've known, as he says, for a very long time, but with Severine. Uh, and in, and Alistair uh, McGregor, who's, of course, uh, I think still jointly is between Bath and um, Sussex. Uh, but I'm particularly glad because um, well-being, human development, happiness is, as I've learned a bit more over lunch, a key perspective of at least many of you uh, here in uh, Bath. And... These uh, issues, these perspectives, to my mind, are absolutely critical for the future of anyone involved in development studies or even development in the United Kingdom or Europe or wherever. Uh, they're still not mainstream, and there's a close link with uh, the perspectives I'm going to give you of the UN, which is that much of what the UN has been doing uh, in economic development and in broader perspectives of development in the last uh, 30 years uh, also has not been mainstream. But I'll give you some statistics and I hope some perspectives to suggest that what the UN has done, like issues of human development and issues of happiness and well-being, ought to be mainstream and already may have achieved, may have achieved more uh, impact than many people uh, formally realize, perhaps many people in economics. Just before I start, though, I want to just say my own memory of Jeff uh, Wood, which uh, curiously was not the Zambia part. It was the, um, your work in Bangladesh uh, from a Marxist perspective. I don't know whether you still are, but uh, there's no reason not to be. And uh, the tough-minded analysis of conflict in Bangladesh that you brought uh, to me was an important perspective when you were looking uh, at the issues of uh, the really poor in Bangladesh and how some groups, and we're talking about mid-70s, I think it might be later 70s, some groups were getting loans to put in deep tube wells and gain power, uh, gain assets, even though they were landless people. And your analysis, I thought, was extremely interesting, extremely important. Early view of the importance of loans that could help really poor people who hadn't got the normal, uh, normal um, asset uh, required for borrowing. Uh, but how poor people had thereby developed some countervailing power and uh, against the landlords who mostly con uh, controlled the land and so forth. And I also liked that because it was positive. And my perspective on development has always been one of uh, development studies is not just an abstract study of what's been going on, but an action-oriented study. And I thought, dear Jeff, that that fitted well. Well, today I want to give you a perspective of the, uh, actually it's the summary volume, even though it was number 15th in publication, came out uh, in uh, September last year. And uh, there's one more to come, as I'll explain. But uh, we're looking at the role of the UN intellectually. What has the UN contributed to ideas? Ideas not in the sense of uh, detached uh, high-level theory, but nevertheless ideas that have influenced action by framing perspectives. In fact, I'll come to a more formal presentation of the way ideas can have real-life impact. So I'm not going to jump to that. But uh, the key point that has emerged from this 10 years project 
is that the UN intellectually has made very big contributions, and I hope by the end of my lecture you'll, uh, you'll see the points that I'm making and I hope agree with them. Um, that the UN has had more influence in this way than many people realize. And also it's a different view of the UN. Many people see the UN as uh, nothing more than a talk shop in New York, uh, and for that matter, a talk shop that's often uh, totally without power. The real action is taking place uh, in Washington or somewhere else. And uh, what's all this uh, debate in the Security Council, let alone in the General Assembly, got to do with it? Actually, that's a very misguided uh, perception of the UN. 80% of the UN's work is, uh, has nothing to do with the Security Council or even the General Assembly. It's concerned with economic and social development, okay, and with emergency operations. It's uh, enormously field-based through UNDP or UNICEF, the organization I worked for, for 15 years, uh, or World Food Program, or the specialized agencies and so forth. And the theme of our lecture and the theme of our 10-year history was, and it's the UN's work has been driven by ideas, values. And uh, one needs to take account of that if one's going to see what's happening. I hope in discussion we can also uh, come back to the theme of human development. You will see that I mention it briefly uh, in my presentation. The UN has played a major role in developing and uh, the ideas of human development through the Human Development Report, through the work of Amartya Sen and Mahbub al-Haq. But it's also been carried on afterwards in many places, including Bath, uh, Oxford, and not all that many, but a few other places. And one of the issues I hope, in a very operational way, I'll leave with you, is how your own work on human development here could and ought to be linked more closely to work of the UN itself. Operational work, and work not just with the Human Development Report Office of UNDP, which is the formal home of the Human Development Report, but with the UN as a whole. It's a set of links that, as I'll indicate, have not been made even within the UN anywhere near as much as ought to be. Well, what I'm presenting is the volume UN Ideas uh, that changed the world. Uh, I'm also going to uh, give some quick references to UN Voices, which is the summary of some 79 interviews that we conducted of senior people in the UN, uh, the four living secretaries general when we conducted uh, the interviews about four or five years ago, including Kofi Annan and uh, the others, um, but also a number of other key people who played roles uh, in the UN. Uh, Nafis Sadiq, who was head of uh, the Population Fund, Noilin Hazer, who was head of uh, UNIFEM for 13 years and is currently head of ESCAP, uh, and so forth. And the point about oral history is it's not a cheap, quick way of finding out what happened because human memories are not all that uh, reliable, particularly if people themselves are concerned with the story. But oral history does have a vital complementary role in trying to track some of the paths not taken or who were some of the key actors in some of the things that did happen or did not happen. And so we've combined in UN Ideas That Changed the World a number of uh, references from uh, UN uh, voices. And for those of you who are research-minded, I'm going to leave behind our freebie, a uh, CD-ROM of the full transcripts of the 79 uh, interviews. And the transcripts are all uh, fully indexed by theme or by date, by person, of course. So if you really do want to uh, follow up what the UN, how the UN was affected, say, by McCarthy, 
uh, which some of you may realize was a very traumatic phase in the early 1950s, or how the UN has uh, fought with the World Bank in various ways, uh, you'll find uh, this and uh, a thousand other ideas. Okay, so let's, uh, let's take you through UN ideas that change the world. If anyone feels they want to make a point while I'm going through, I don't mind being interrupted, but I hope I can get through my story so that uh, there's plenty of time for questions, discussion, debate at the end. Let me just see, does that? Yes. So the power of UN ideas, that is the theme, and the two elements that have gone into this project, ideas matter, yes, but also people matter, yes, and people who've worked for or closely with the UN have been critical. Well, I've got that on the slide. For those uh, of you who want to follow up, let me advertise that we've got a uh, website, unhistory.org. It also is very well um, organized, user-friendly, and it has summaries of the key uh, chapters in this book and uh, more or less other elements. Well, these are the footnotes to what I'm going to be presented. They're the first, whatever it is, eight or nine books. There's the second, the one, the UN and Global Governance, an unfinished journey, has just come out two days ago. And the only one that's yet to emerge in the next two months or so will be Development Without Destruction, the UN and the Global Resource Management. We had an advisory panel uh, from around the world. You might recognize uh, some people. Uh, the key point about the advisory panel is you can spend an awful lot of money flying your members of your advisory panel uh, to, uh, to the meeting when they're going to advise. I think we only did that twice because we then had uh, the advisory panel members coming when as relevant to the discussion of the various books that we had in draft. So we got uh, two for one, and in a couple of cases, they were authors. Well, UN voices I've mentioned. They're the people, some of the people, the 79 that we interviewed. Fascinating uh, stories emerged. Um, Bernard Chidzero, some of you might just know, he ended up as Minister of Finance in the good days of Zimbabwe in the 1980s and died uh, a bit young. It emerged from his uh, account that he worked in the tobacco fields in Zimbabwe until he was 11. He then worked in uh, a tailor shop uh, for another year, at which point he learned to read and write quite a story. He'd got his PhD from McGill 10 years after that, so uh, enough to make everyone in the room feel uh, <laughs> slightly humbled to go from literacy to PhD in a top-class university in 10 years. Um, Kofi Annan's story is interesting. He was um, 11, no, he was uh, 15 in his school in Ghana when uh, he and a number of the others thought the food was not up to standards. So he organized a strike one Sunday against the quality of the food. And the early skills of someone who became Secretary General of the UN were shown because he made sure everyone had a really good meal on the Saturday. Uh, so he wasn't going to have any strike baker breakers from uh, pangs of hunger. Uh, the second lesson that emerged was the headmaster called him in, I think it was early in the afternoon on Sunday, and said, uh, young Annan, um, you know, if you're thinking of something like this in the future, come and talk to me quietly behind the scenes first. Um, because, uh, young Annan, you're quite bright, and if you apply yourself and learn a few tricks of how the political world operates, you might go quite far. 
So that's just two of the points. The more serious points that emerged, which we hadn't expected, was that uh, many of the senior people in the UN uh, at that stage had grown up either affected by the Second World War and were highly conscious of that, those experiences in the youth, or affected indeed even before that by the uh, Great uh, Depression of the 1930s. And many, not all, but many of the UN uh, staff members had therefore come into the UN with a deep sense of purpose, a deep conviction, moral conviction in many, many cases, that the world needed to tackle these issues in different ways and wanting to play their own uh, part in it. Uh, so those elements uh, come out in different ways with um, the people. And so much so that when we originally thought of producing a book, UN Voices of this, well, we thought we'd, we'd have um, you know, elements of their experiences during the UN. It seemed to us important to have three chapters at the beginning, summarizing in different ways their experiences before they even got to the UN. And then also because many of them gave their own frank account of where the UN's gone wrong or what needs to be strengthened today, we ended up with four chapters for the future, what needs to happen as again seen by people there. So that's almost all I'm going to say about UN voices, except Lourdes Arizbe, a distinguished uh, anthropologist from Mexico who worked for uh, the uh, UNESCO for a couple of years trying to set up a report on world culture and then UNESCO lost courage and wanted to, to control it too much, so she resigned. But wonderful quote. Someone said that the UN is a dream managed by bureaucrats. She said, I've learned that it's actually a uh, bureaucracy managed by dreamers. Uh, and then uh, you've got to have a sense of mission in order to withstand the constant battering by governments who are afraid that the UN will become a world government. And then um, a very revealing comment. So in the end, someone who works in the UN has to be a magician of ideas because working for the UN is like working for a government in which all the political parties are in power at the same time. But remember, there's 192 members of the UN, member governments. And although some are small, perhaps as seen from our perspective, uh, not, of course, from the perspective of the ambassador representing a small country, you've got to juggle with the views of 192, or boil it down, a very large number of countries. Okay, that's a perspective uh, of the uh, UN Voices, and that's the research tool that I leave behind you. Now, what are the nine ideas that changed the world? And these are the nine. We've built them into this uh, final book, and I'm going to read them out one by one just so we get a perspective. Human rights for all. And I'll say a word about that in 1945, how remarkable the idea of human rights for all was. Gender equality and women's empowerment, a key issue, particularly after the World's Women's Conferences, 75, 80, 85, 95. Development goals, I trust all of you know what the MDGs are. I'm not even seeing any nods, but yes, okay. Incidentally, I was with Joe Stiglitz when he asked the same question uh, of 300 people, a crowded room, people sitting on the side in the American Economic Association. What are the MDGs, he said. Come on, hands up, he said. Something under a third of people raised them. That's the American Economic Association for you. Fairer international economic relations, not free trade, but fairer international economic relations. Almost from the beginning, that's been a key idea of the UN. Strategies for accelerating development in poorer countries. Priorities for social development environmental sustainability, 
peace and human security and human development. Uh, and human development, to me, is an idea that embraces almost all these others. And so it's not just an annual report, and it certainly isn't just HDI and a few other indices. It's, uh, and it's not just putting people at the center of development. It's a frame that actually is very much of the UN and could serve as an integrating frame in relation to economic, social, political development for all the others. Unfortunately, it hasn't yet been used much for that purpose. Before I start saying a comment about some, I'm not going to have time to deal with each of the ideas. Let me say a comment about the UN's role in each of these. Uh, sometimes the UN has played a critical role as the fount of these ideas. I think human development is a very good example. Uh, and um, the development goals, a very good example. The UN has really been the source of the ideas. Sometimes the UN has been the font, blessing the ideas. And perhaps, um, well, perhaps gender equality, women's empowerment, um, although actually it's there, it was more the UN as forum that brought women and some men together from all parts of the world. Uh, sometimes the UN has been the frame for framing these issues. Uh, sometimes it's used its finance for supporting them. So it's not that the UN has been the original source. It's been found or font or frame or finance. I think in the book we managed to get to six of these in uh, our alliteration because before we discovered that it might also be the funeral for some of the ideas. But let me say, make a further point and also put a little bit of flesh behind this on human rights for all. Uh, but I'm making two points here, and I'll, go, I'll come back to the boldest step of all. But all of the ideas evolved. It's not that they were written into the charter, and then uh, it's um, just continued. Uh, each of the ideas has been uh, changed, made more relevant, adapted to a changing situation or otherwise. But human rights for all surely is the boldest step of all. You have to take yourself back to 1945. Uh, remember the, the US, who played the major role in creating the UN. Uh, in the US, um, blacks, many blacks in many states could not vote. Um, so the idea of human rights, which include voting rights for all, Think of UK. UK, we still had all our colonies. Well, not almost all the colonies. We certainly had in 1945 India, Pakistan, and so forth. And the Soviet Union, the third uh, big power, had its gulags. It was quite remarkable that human rights for all was built into the Charter and then became the focus in 1948 for the Universal Declaration in a committee chaired by, uh, chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, the uh, wife of the former president at that time. Um, so how come human rights were so clearly on the agenda? That's itself interesting. In 1944, a year before the San Francisco meeting, which uh, launched the UN, uh, there was a draft, of course, that produced at Dunbarton Oaks. And President Roosevelt was very conscious of what had happened to the League of Nations. Visionary body, never approved by the Senate, never receiving formal US support. He wanted to avoid that with the UN. So, having got the draft of Dunbarton Oaks, he appointed Adlai Stevenson and some others to go around the country, the US, and to check that some of the obvious groups that might support a UN 
uh, were on board. He went to the churches, he went to the Jewish councils, he went to a variety of other non-government groups. And he was met with comments, well, how are human rights being treated in this new world? They looked at Dunbarton Oaks' draft, they found the word human rights once. The two words once. They said, well, we're not actually going to sign on and give you support. So by the time the charter was uh, developed, I think human rights was mentioned 12 times. Uh, a major change. Now let me come to the Universal Declaration, because I find that a wonderful encouragement of the power of hypocrisy. And I mean hypocrisy. I've explained why the US, the Soviet Union, and the UK were happy to have a universal declaration as a declaration, providing in no way it was for implementation, or at least not for implementation now. And Eleanor Roosevelt both had a mandate and could see the point. She would, so nothing got into the universal declaration that was a declaration, uh, more than a declaration. But increasingly, it has been turned into law and it's being implemented. The tricks then were several. One was the idea that having got a universal declaration, and there were some other human rights declarations, there should be a covenant uh, that individual countries would sign on to. And then what turned a declaration into action was when individual countries signed on saying they would uh, implement the, uh, say, the covenant of economic and social and cultural rights or the second covenant, the U.S. wanted two, on political and civil rights. And it took something like 20 years before they were even approved in general, let alone before the requisite number of countries had signed on not merely to say that they would implement them individually, but to get enough votes uh, to, for them to take effect uh, internationally. But it did happen. So now you've got the core of seven major human rights ratified by 120 to 190 countries. I hope uh, if I tell you that it's the Convention on the Rights of the Child that has been ratified by 190 countries out of the 192 I mentioned. I hope you can guess at least uh, one of the countries that has not ratified. You look as though you do know. Unfortunately, the USA. And the other, sorry? You know, go to the top of the class, sir. You are. <laughs> I see, yes, very good. Well, I'm glad it's. Uh, uh, this is not the moment to go into the reasons why right-wing Americans have problems with um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. I once gave a very well-attended press conference. I think there were 200 people present, not because I was there, but because Peter Ustinov was present, giving his presentation. And, uh, and then when it came to me as a UNICEF official, uh, someone masquerading as a, as a journalist said, why is UNICEF promoting the Convention on the Rights of the Child? I had really, was not properly briefed at that time. I couldn't believe that anyone was against it. So I said, said why it was good, and this, that, and the other. Uh, I said, but why, why do you have doubts? He said, it forbids you to beat your child. Spare the rod and spoil the child. So there are some people, uh, and if you doubt me there, you can go on to the website and look up Paddles, P-A-D-D-L-E-S. They have these right-wing groups actually sell Paddles for child beating. That's taken me off my main theme, so we mustn't go there. But I'm still a UNICEF person uh, underneath. So many other conventions and instruments have adopted and been ratified. And the final point there, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, created uh, by agreement of the Vienna Human Rights Conference in 1993. 
The interesting point of that was that it wasn't some totally new idea. There should be an office, a person in the UN system, a staff member responsible for implementation of the various human rights conventions. It had first been proposed by a staff member in 1947. It took 46 years before governments were prepared to, to take on that idea. I am afraid I've reached the stage in life where I look at things optimistically. So instead of saying 47 years, or was it 46? 46 years before something happened, I look back and say, well done, uh, the staff member who proposed that. We've all got to keep working at it. And when enough public opinion is built up, then we can see the implementations. And that is a story not only for human rights for all, the power of public opinion, the power for NGOs and others. The gender story, as I've already hinted, is slightly different. Interestingly, gender was put by a staff member as the first substantive item on the UN statistical agenda in 1946 didn't seem to go anywhere, but it was recognized. Interestingly, Africa, uh, and in particular the Economic Commission for Africa, did the key early work on UN, uh, on the role of women in development, as it tended to be called there, well ahead of the other regions. There is, some of you may know, Esther Bosrup's classic book. But the key point that made the difference in the story were the four World Women's Conferences. And this is brought out in the volume of UN uh, Women, U UN, and the 60-Year Quest for Social Justice uh, and Equity, which is the book by Devaki Jain, one of the early books that were presented. And Devaki identifies these four world women's conferences as critical. This is the UN as forum. Uh, the first conference was held in Mexico, uh, we interviewed Letitia Shahani, a distinguished Filipino, who had been uh, proposed to be the chair of the first World Women's Conference in Mexico, until, of course, um, the Mexican government said, but please, this is an international conference of importance. We can't have a woman chairing that. You must have a man. Well, it shows how things change. Letitia became the uh, chair of the second World Women's Conference in Copenhagen. There was a third in Nairobi and a fourth in uh, Beijing. But the key point that Devaki Jane brings out is that these conferences brought together women from all over the world and some men, and they suddenly realized that the issues they were struggling with at home were also very similar to issues of gender equity or lack of gender equity in other parts of the world, sometimes regions, sometimes quite different regions. And initially, there was some quite big differences seen by the women's issues of industrial countries and the women's issues of developing countries. But by the second and third and fourth conference, they were seen all as aspects of inequities that were facing women in different forms around the world. But the key point was that women went back from these conferences enormously empowered to realize that their own struggle was not just an individual or a national, national struggle, that they had allies from all around the world. And the women's movement took off in many ways, and the UN played a critical role uh, as forum, and also as agency to support UNIFEM, the UN uh, Organization for uh, Women's Fund, uh, was created uh, after the first conference. CEDAW, the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, uh, was adopted. And um, at the moment, I not, may not be totally up to date, there is the proposal that there be an Under Secretary General in the UN responsible for all 
the four women's uh, or organizations concerned with women's and uh, directly under the Secretary General. So again, a story of evolution, a story of a different role of the UN. I'll have to speed up a bit. So in areas of peace and security, uh, we've also seen an enormous set of changes. Uh, the, if you read the charter, you'll see that it was very much concerned with the formal processes of declaring war on matters of peace and security, and that there was to be a replacement of conflict with the rule of law. But early on, in the time of uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the secretary, second secretary general, uh, the idea of behind-the-scenes negotiation and facilitation of uh, approaches to prevent conflict was developed by uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, he emphasized very much the quiet role, the secret role. Um, and uh, that has still often been the case. There is a whole book on preventive diplomacy. Um, but we do also have in our main study the role of Utant, the third Secretary General after, the, after Dag Hammarskjöld had died, perhaps been killed in a, car, in a plane crash uh, in Zambia, as it happens. Um, and um, how uh, Utant played a critical role in the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, not always that emphasized, with the emphasis, of course, on the role of Kennedy directly and the Russians, uh, but um, a critical role by the UN. Another theme which I think ought to be much more part of development, if I perhaps we come back to it, disarmament and development, um, which the UN from the 50s has been emphasizing. Uh, very creatively, at times suggesting that there should be an agreed international effort of disarmament, some reduction in military, with a quarter of the benefits going to support for developing countries. Uh, I think that was first a French proposal. Then at times it's been a UN-wide uh, resolution um, then there was, in the 1980s, a major report by uh, Inga Torsen, the Swedish Minister of Disarmament. At this point, I sometimes have a pause and say, do you know what other countries have had a minister for disarmament? Canada, for example, for five years. Uh, it's, why shouldn't we have a minister responsible for disarmament? And I've recently been in Costa Rica. I hope you all know that Costa Rica got rid of its army in 1948. So it has been 62 years without an army. And I think it's pretty obvious as you go around Costa Rica, you talk to people and so forth, and you see the quality and extent of secondary and higher education in Costa Rica compared with uh, Panama on one side or Nicaragua on the other, you see what they've gained by not spending money on the army. And there are some other countries which have taken disarmament uh, seriously and um, have saved money. Uh, let me quote, because I haven't got time to go through the other elements, but on disarmament and development, which is my pet themes... Let me say, yes, Steele, I'm sure some of you are saying, well, it sounds great, and I know the UN is an idealistic organization, but have you ever seen anything like this? Well, I give you Joe Stiglitz and Larry Klein, another Nobel Prize winner in economics, who both analyzed the issue, and showed from 1988-89 or so, the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the breakdown of the wall, world military expenditures came down by about a quarter, both in developing and industrial countries. Then one says, yes, but was that disarmament and development as had been foreseen? And Stieglitz shows that 
it wasn't the use of the money saved from disarmament that was then used for development, which had been the formal ideas the UN had come up with. But it was the fact that reducing American military spending so much set in motion the long-standing boom, the 10 years of boom in the U.S. economy because saving money of various ways and cutting the deficit. And this had noticeable knock-on effects, positive to many developing countries. So there was, in that sense, a peace dividend in the 1990s, even though it had emerged in a very different way from that had been uh, identified. Well, we can come back to any, any, of the, any of the other issues, but I will start losing my way. I must say a word about development without destruction, which is perhaps the area where the UN has been, has, where ideas about environment and development have changed the most. As this book about to emerge on development without destruction uh, makes clear, the early uh, contributions of the UN on environment was actually national sovereignty over natural resources. Again, you've got to think back and realize this is the end of the colonial period. All sorts of countries were becoming independent. And a major part of colonialism had been to get control of the natural resources of different parts of the world and different countries for the benefit of the colonizing powers. So there was a major step forward in saying no, national sovereignty over natural resources. But within 10 years, environment had come into the equation, uh, not merely concerned for the environment in industrial countries, but the UN playing a critical role on environment must be linked to issues of development. Otherwise, it just means that the rich countries have filled up the sink of global pollution and the developing countries are being told, hold on, there's no room left for your development. So environment with development uh, became a critical issue, a theme also carried forward in our common future. There was the work on the law of the sea as well. And then as early as 1988, 22 years ago, the IPCC was actually created. Uh, a key example of the UN being not only ahead of the curve, but coming up with ideas long before their time had come. We like to quote, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. One of the key points in this area, but in many of the others, the UN came up with ideas long before the time had come, and then has stuck with them long enough uh, for the idea suddenly to gain uh, relevance and traction in the popular mind. And then 1992, uh, the Rio summit, which was a big thing when I was in the UN, uh, enormous number of people, uh, well over 100 governments attending the uh, Earth Summit, uh, NGOs and so forth. And um, perhaps much more positive uh, feeling of the outcome than Copenhagen Summit on Climate Change. And I don't quite know why I put seven rather than nine there. I think that's a misprint. But um, I think what one must say about Copenhagen is that it's um, an issue in process. But the key point there is you've moved from natural national sovereignty to how can we uh, combine environment and development. Uh, as my wife likes to say, in this sort of period, how can we function as fish in a goldfish bowl? And then, as she neatly said, once we get, bio, once we get global warming, the issue is how can the goldfish bowl survive uh, if it's put in a microwave? which is the problem we're not yet grappling with. 
Well, that's to remind us that all the issues have evolved. Let me say a word for any economist present. I don't know how many there are. And if they're not, um, just do be, do be ready to quote some of these statistics. I'm linking together the four issues that, um, that the UN has emphasized almost from the beginning in relation to issues of mainstream economics. I've mentioned fairer international economic relations, the development goals, and national development strategies. The point that's new here is that often the UN has been ahead of the curve, and usually differing from those ideas of the World Bank and the IMF, even though since 1980 in particular, the Bretton Woods institutions have gained most of the money they have most of the support from most of the industrial countries. Well, UN goals, we, for uh, our volumes, we went back to the beginning. When did the UN first set up any goals? Uh, long before the MDGs. And it was actually UNESCO in 1960 uh, that first came up with ideas for the expansion of education, not just incidentally, universal primary education, but they worked regionally with countries to say there should be goals for the expansion of secondary and higher education and so forth. Uh, the first development de decade uh, proposed by President John F. Kennedy in the stages when the U.S. was much more positive towards the, US, the UN and Kennedy said we should have, if we're going to put a man on the moon, we should also have some actions to focus on poverty and underdevelopment in many poorer countries. And why don't, they, why don't we declare a development decade? And the UN produced uh, that for the 1970s. And incidentally, the goals for that were, large, were more than exceeded. The goal was that there should be an acceleration of economic growth over the 60s to reach a rate of 5% by the end of the 60s. In fact, the goal was more than achieved, 5.6%. And perhaps the most, uh, most exciting uh, story was the smallpox eradication. It had been proposed to the World Health Assembly uh, five or ten years beforehand. Interestingly, some think you thought at the time that it was a Soviet plot to try and show up the capitalist countries for their unwillingness to think uh, globally. Anyway, uh, then in 1966, it was a formal proposal. And interestingly, for students of um, bureaucracies, the uh, director general of the WHO at the time was against it. For very good reasons, I think. Honest reasons, I think is the word. Not good. He thought it was impossible. He thought they were going to fall flat on their face. They, the WHO had tried in the 1950s to eradicate smallpox, uh, to eradicate, eradicate malaria. Why should they be caught trying to do something that required individual immunization for uh, the three or four billion people in the world? It was just going to be impossible. And yet, by 1971, uh, smallpox, was, uh, which had been endemic in a whole pile of countries, was getting, uh, getting uh, eradicated or eliminated, as the term is then. Uh, then they changed strategies. So instead of trying to immunize everyone, they adopted a strategy of firefighting in which they went immediately with a group uh, of doctors and others to any area where there'd been someone found with smallpox and immediately traced every one of those, the contacts that person had had in the previous two, three weeks immunized them all, and gradually tracked tr down until the final uh, case of smallpox, I think, was in Somalia in um, 1977. 
This is not a misprint. The reason it said smallpox, it was eradicated by 79, is the WHO, like much parts of the UN, uh, is very serious about uh, goals and monitoring goals. They said we can't be sure in 77 uh, whether it's been eradicated. So they gave increasingly high cash awards in 78 and 79 to anyone who could produce someone with an actual case of smallpox. And they couldn't. So after two years, uh, they said smallpox uh, has been uh, eradicated. Um, and the point I wish to summarize that, and then I'll have to move on, is that um, the total cost of this effort was $300 million. $200 million from national sources, $100 million from international sources. The cost, the price, even at the time, of three fighter bombers. Probably not many of you know how much of smallpox was, uh, how difficult smallpox was, how killing a disease. If you read in the Bible, you see the fear associated with smallpox. Even in the 1960s, it was killing two million people a year. Probably Jeff and myself can remember, when I used to meet people from South Asia at the time, uh, it was common to see people with pox marks, because they'd had smallpox and survived. It was a terrible killing disease. You now don't see people with pox marks. It was very common uh, when we started in development. 300 million, three fighter bombers, and it was eradicated. Well, polio is most of the way there. Guinea worm is most of the way there. Uh, there's a whole technical discussion of whether we can quite eradicate as opposed to eliminate small um, polio and well guinea worm can be uh, can be eradicated but these things are difficult um, and there's much technical debate but the UN has been critically involved with these in fact there's the story of the 50 development goals Four or five of them have been mostly achieved. I've gone over the eradication of smallpox and the others. Interestingly, also targets for raising life expectancy and reducing infant mortality. Not all the targets, but those have been considerably achieved. The majority, sorry, have been mostly achieved. The majority of these 50 goals have been considerably achieved, meaning considerably in relation to the original quantitative and time-dated target, uh, and um, by a very large number of countries. And a few goals have been slipped badly. Accelerated reduction of illiteracy, the 0.7% of gross national income for aid, and special support for least developed countries. Well, there's the Millennium Summit, which agreed the MDGs. This is a reminder of um, the nine Nobel Prize winners in economics that have worked for the UN at different times. I put that up because it's uh, typical for people to sneer about the quality of the UN's work in economics. Um, so at this point I say, well, um, how many Nobel Prize winners in economics have worked for the World Bank? Ah, who is the second? Uh, sorry, who is the first and second? I don't know if they're I see, <laughs> yes. Well, the answer, I think, is one. Joe Stieglitz. That point, I say, and remember, he resigned. <laughs> but these are the ones that have worked for the... Including Jan Tinbergen. Two stories about him, um, apart from the fact that I have his picture inherited from Hans on my wall in Sussex. Jan Tinbergen, um, first of all, his brother, Nico Tinbergen, a distinguished biologist, uh, also won the Nobel Prize. There were three brothers. The third was known as the stupid one. 
I think he only got double first and a few other things. The other thing was Jan Tinbergen actually said when he was awarded the first Nobel Prize in economics, actually, I'm a little disappointed. I'd rather hoped it was the Nobel Prize for Peace. He had been a distinguished a promising physicist in his early years. In the 1930s, he'd had to uh, do national service in, uh, in Netherlands. He became a conscientious objector. Uh, they said, right, you must do alternative service. Oh, you're good at maths. You better go into the statistics department. And he discovered poverty. And the rest of his life, nationally, internationally, he worked on poverty and national planning. Well, we could go on with the others, but we haven't got time. There's uh, Arthur Lewis, who, of course, was at Manchester for a while, um, did a lot with the UN, and ended up in Princeton. But this, these are the statistics uh, in relation to the World Bank's uh, leadership, if that's the world, on structural adjustment in the 1980s and 1990s. And this is, I give the source because... Uh, the emperor has no growth. Um, 1980 to 2000, as probably uh, most of you know, were years of structural adjustment. Debt had risen in the 1970s. The IMF was called in, as it is being called in at the moment in Greece. The IMF uh, more or less always has the same remedy. You've got to cut government expenditure and severely. So, this is what happened. 1980 to 2000 in Latin America, total growth over 20 years was plus 9%, not even half of 1% per year on average, compared with 80% 1960 to 80. In Africa, it was even worse. 36% over 20 years, during 1960 to 80, minus 15%, 1980 to 2000. Africa ended up poorer per capita than it had started in 1980. The emperor has no growth. And the UN was weak in its criticism of this, but its voice was not totally absent. The ILO tried to organize a big conference on structural adjustment. Uh, were told that if they persisted with that, the U.S. would leave and take with it its money, which was about a quarter of the budget of the ILO. Uh, Economic Commission for Africa, ECA, uh, tried uh, producing alternative programs for structural adjustment. Uh, and were sat upon very sharply by the World Bank and the IMF. We in UNICEF got away with it for various reasons, um, more lightly perhaps because we were pleading with the need for a, a new approach to structural adjustment for children and so forth. At any rate, we were never subject to the strong pressures, and we came out with a book, uh, two books in fact, Adjustment with a Human Face. Right, I'm going to now wind up this part, um, and, um, but I want to make one or two general points before uh, a summary and then a set of challenges for the future. One of the general points is what do we mean by the UN? And in the course of this study, we've come up with the feeling that there's not one UN or even two UNs, there's three UNs. There's the UN of governments, which, of course, the formal part of the government, the member governments of General Assembly and uh, Security Council. But then there are also UN staff members, and often the good ideas and the persistence with good ideas has been due to UN staff members, the people we interviewed uh, mostly for UN Voices. But then there's the third UN, uh, experts, members of commissions, NGOs closely associated with the UN, conceivably one or two staff members of Bath who've been consultants and so forth. And in different ways, the third UN has often been 
critically important for coming up with ideas or saying, let's take the ideas of human rights, not just as a declaration, but as something that needs to be implemented. And have mobilized, mobilized NGOs. Remember how debt, uh, the debt actions uh, related, uh, followed very much from this circle of 50,000 people in Birmingham uh, in uh, 2000, I think it was, just before the uh, G7 uh, was meeting. And that third UN is often critically interacting in ways that um, lead to the action. Then I said I'd mention how ideas, why they're important and how they gained traction. And so our very way issues, we perceive issues, are enormously affected by how they're presented in literature, in academic books, in the media, in film, and so forth. You can change the very way issues are perceived. And that certainly has been so with environment. That's certainly been so with human rights. That's certainly, I hope, on process, on what do we mean by development? Do we mean just an increase in economic uh, expansion of GNP or other issues? That's the business that we, as university people, but also the UN has been heavily involved in. And then in relation to that, state and non-state interests and goals get redefined. And then when they get redefined, governments can well change their own view of their own interests and start setting agendas for action. Again, environment is a very good case. It's one in process of uh, change then, thirdly, as I mentioned, the NGOs can be mobilized to press for action. And then, fourthly, most of the ideas I've mentioned have got embedded in some part of the UN, but it may not just be the UN, within, in institutions response, with responsibilities for oversight, implementation, and monitoring. You can see that in the creation of the office of uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights. You can see it in the office in, the, uh, in UNCTAD, UN, part of the UN responsible for overseeing issues of trade uh, and uh, so forth. You can see it. I lived it for 15 years in relation to UNICEF, responsibility for children and trying to show people that the way we look at children in our families, in most cases, uh, is, uh, is with such loving care and determination and of support, and why not having something similar nationally and internationally? Well, that's just more about pioneers. Now the balance sheet. So when all is said and done, what did we uh, come up with? Actually, we, have, we had 10, but I boiled it down here to the balance sheet of UN successes, where the UN really, as I hope I've explained enough, has set agendas for development, goal setting, making pioneer contributions to ideas. I didn't really get much chance to say about Hans Singer's work on unfair trade and so forth, uh, supportive action, and integrating into human development the UN's four founding ideas for peace, development, human rights, and sovereign independence. We did come up with the negatives. We said that the UN had given late reaction to the Washington Consensus. Those statistics that I showed you emerged in 19, in really in 2000. Uh, the UN could have attacked and should have attacked, in my view, the very fundamentals of, of structural adjustment much earlier, but it was weak. UNDP was playing little brother to big brother, the World Bank, and so forth. We've seen enormous growth of global inequalities between countries, let alone individuals. 
and there's been weak response to the special needs of the least developed countries. Too little done to introduce cultural aspects into the development equation. Tardy and weak reactions to HIV-AIDS and, in general, this inadequate attention to inequalities of income and wealth nationally and internationally. Incidentally, not during the first 20, 30 years. There was a, the UN said a lot and did a lot then on inequalities nationally and internationally. But in total, the UN's contributions, one, we believe and we feel we've got in our 17 volumes the evidence of the UN has led the way with many fundamental ideas, more than is often realized. The UN has often been ahead of the World Bank and the IMF, though these have received most donor support and most finance, and the balance sheet shows a small but significant surplus. Um, I would say a considerable and significant surplus, but as this was a study of three of us co-directing, the others said, come on, Richard, you're a UN junkie, and uh, you must be more cautious. But we did end up agreeing that ideas may be among the UN's most important contributions and hardly mentioned in the popular literature. Well, that's, uh, that's the end of the history summary. I want to just end the uh, presentation by will this be enough for the future? And our book has 10 global challenges, but I thought it would make it more focused if I end by giving the five neglected challenges. Strengthening global governance, the UN, of course, but not only the UN in a multipolar world. The world is shifting. The center of gravity is shifting towards Asia, China, India, of course, but also other countries. We need to balance regionalism with globalization. Um, Europe is a very good example, well, a fairly good example of regionalism. Um, but one of the points we make in the volume for the future, about the future, is that uh, regionalism has been largely a process pushed by governments, and globalization has been largely a process pushed by uh, private sector firms. I've mentioned narrowing inequalities which are totally out of hand globally and nationally. Bridging international divides of culture and identities and shifting the focus of security from states to individuals, from geographic security to human security. So I want to end with some quotes the UN wasn't set up to bring mankind to heaven, but to save us from hell. The first secretary, second secretary general. Sergio de Mello was the UN Brazilian killed uh, in Iraq. A uh, wonderful man in many ways. Unless we aim for the seemingly unattainable, we risk setting for settling for mediocrity. And a fine one from Kofi. Applaud us when we prevail, correct us when we fail, but above all, do not let this indispensable, irreplaceable institution wither, languish, or perish. So, thank you very much. I hope that's given us a good chunk to discuss.